The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 10th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vladimir Lenin would ask, in focusing on the correct explanation for something that was confusing, often for something that was cacophonous, he would ask, who stands to gain? Who stands to gain? Who stands to gain from James Comey's ouster? Well, it would be whoever Comey was investigating now that that investigation is necessarily halted. So who was Comey investigating? On three separate occasions, President Trump told Comey and us in his letter of dismissal, Comey assured Trump that he, Trump, was not under investigation. Did Comey, when being asked this question that may not have ever occurred or not occurred in the way the president said it did, did he preface his answer with talk of doors, marked conceal, or disclosed? Unknown. It turned out Trump took the third door in Let's Make a Deal and Comey was zonked. So who stands to gain? If you believe it had nothing to do with Russia, nothing at all, since there's no investigation going on, see three assurances, a bead, then this was just the swift sword of justice over past misdeeds, delivered three months after Trump took office. Because this had nothing to do with Russia. Nothing to do with Russia. Like, say, the U.S. hockey team's Miracle on Ice had nothing to do with Russia. You remember the Miracle on Ice, Lake Placid, 1980. The U.S. beats Finland to win the gold. Totally true. Check it out. There's your Miracle on Ice. Nothing to do with Russia. Uh, But wait a minute. The game before... No, no. Nothing to do with Russia. If it had to do with Russia, Jeff Sessions might have had to recuse himself. So, of course, it didn't have anything to do with Russia. And you could tell because Sessions was there. So that's the proof. It had nothing to do with Russia. Just like these, these, this cute set of little wooden dolls that fit inside each other. Just like they're not Russian. Wait, wait. You're exactly describing Russian nesting dolls. Matryoshkas. No. I'm not, no what? Never heard of them. These are shaker stacking boxes. One fits inside the other. Lots of cultures do this with dolls. When I was young, I even think I had a Scrappy-Doo, and he fit inside Scooby-Doo, and they both fit inside the mystery machine. So nothing to do with Russia, nothing at all. I think we can all agree on that. Over drinks of Chopin vodka, Grey Goose vodka, and Absolute vodka. Poland, France, and Sweden, the three great vodka-making countries. And nothing to do with Russia. On the show today, I spiel about this, this exact thing. You know why you ever have one of those days where if you tune in or read a news provider, uh, radio, TV, I've heard there are other forms of communication, and they're talking about a story other than the huge one with dire implications that have all these unanswered questions, you get mad at that news source. Like, I do not care that Betsy DeVos was booed, or I will watch Donald Glover's Netflix show when it comes on Netflix, or it doesn't matter if Matt Matt Harvey apologized for the dildo in his locker room. Wait, can we go back a second on that one? Anyway, no, no, no. So I get upset if it's not Comey. So today it's all Comey. Got to get to Comey. So to that end, up first, it is Slate's justice correspondent, Leon Nafak, with info on what comes next and a look at Rod Rosenstein, the deputy AG who said, hey, hey, ho, ho, James Comey has got to go.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me quote from uh, Benjamin Wittes, past guest of The Gist. He writes the Lawfare blog, has a podcast of the same name. Just one of the most respected uh, thinkers on these issues. I've known Rod Rosenstein a long time. I've always thought well of him. I was cheered by his nomination. I misjudged him completely. That's Benjamin Wittes. A few days ago on the pages of Slate, Leon Nafak, our justice reporter, wrote about this guy who was now, who was then acting deputy attorney general. He's thrust into the news, Rod Rosenstein, and Leon's here. Hello, Leon. How are you? Hi, Mike. So writing about the uh, new deputy AG, just part of your beat, or was there a specific reason you wanted to cover him? Yeah, I, I mean, there was a specific reason, which was that everyone I spoke to about him expressed optimism that he would be a steadying force in the Jeff Sessions Department of Justice. One, because he has been working in the Department of Justice for his entire career, 27 years. Uh, he's a known quantity there, worked in a bunch of different parts of the building. He's been a U.S. attorney for 12 years. He has the uh, distinction of having been asked by Obama to stay on as U.S. attorney, even though he'd been appointed by Bush. The only one. The only one. The yeah. only one. And we could quote reams of uh, Democratic senators from his home state yes. saying what a great guy he is, what a great employee he is. And again, he's been retained and, in fact, appointed by Trump, which would seem to be testimony of his bipartisanship and just how good he is at his job. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the, the folks that I've been that I've been speaking to before the piece were saying, like, he's an adult, like he could be a calming presence. He could potentially even be an influence on, on Sessions, who up to this point has demonstrated very little regard for like the ideal of not making the DOJ appear to be a wing of the White House. You know, he, Sessions. Like showing up at uh, showing up at press conferences at the White House. Yeah, that was a big like one. That. Sessions came to the White House briefing room and addressed, you know, he threatened sanctuary cities from the White House podium in interviews. He would say 
say things about the administration using the word we. And And we should say the United States federal government, perhaps uniquely, has a president who appoints his head of Department of Justice. I think no states even have this. Very few other countries have this. The idea being you should have your chief lawyer be independent from the executive. The United States Constitution uh, had a different thought on this, but there has been traditions where there has been a separation. Yeah, and it's no no more than a norm, I would say. And And in a certain sense, it's naive to think that the... AG who is chosen by the president will not be an ally of the president. Uh, yeah. know, Eric Holder was an ally of Obama, it, just as Sessions is ideologically an ally of Trump. The, the criticism that I was hearing about Sessions was that putting aside his ideological kinship with the Trump administration, the fact that he has the same policy priorities, he w- was just erasing any public perception that he was not merely a loyalist to the administration, that he had an independent status. So reading the Rosenstein letter, I guess at first glance, you could say or conclude what Benjamin Wittes concluded, that he wasn't independent, that he became Trump's hatchet man. But I think if you really delve into it, you might come to different conclusions. What did you take from that letter that would either confirm or rebut the idea that he's been something other than an independent professional in this process? Well, so you, you you read the letter in the context of the accompanying statement from Trump or from the White House, the letter that Trump sent to Comey, uh, wishing him well in his future endeavors. And you're like, well, they, you know, asked Rosenstein to come up with some reasons for why Comey had to go and he obliged. That might be well what happened. And in fact, you know, reporting that I was seeing on Twitter just a few minutes ago said that white, that, that indeed Trump met with Rosenstein as recently as Monday. And uh, what he said to him, I don't know. But there's a way for that to be true and for Rosenstein to have remained the man of integrity that he is reputed to be because maybe Rosenstein just really does believe that Comey deserved to be fired. And in fact, you read the letter and it's quite impassioned. I mean, you you know, there's a part in the in the first half where he says like I do not understand how Comey could continue defending his actions. It just feels like he means it. I would be surprised if he didn't mean it. Rosenstein think, doesn't recommend Comey be fired, though. That's an interesting observation that I, I forget the name of the person who made it on Twitter, but it was widely circulated that if you read the letter closely, he doesn't say, I think this person should be fired. He says that we need to we need to have an FBI director who understands that these were mistakes and pledges never to repeat them. So there's room in there for Comey to say, I acknowledge what I did was wrong. I won't do it again. And then Rosenstein would be satisfied with that. The question has been like, does he? did he know what he was writing? Was this just like a something he thought was a personal memo about well, Comey? Here, or here's a writing assignment. Give me the case for <laughs> exactly. firing Jim Comey. Not saying that we're going to do it. Just what's the case? Precisely. Thank you. We're going to do it. Precisely. Any evidence that this was, you said they met Monday. The letter was dated May 9th, the day that it all came down. Any evidence that it was in the works beforehand? I think, uh, yes. So there was reporting in the Post yesterday saying that Rosenstein had been looking at Comey since being sworn in two weeks ago as deputy attorney general, which suggests that this was not like a last minute thing for him. You're right that the letter is dated yesterday, as is the Sessions letter and as is the Trump letter to Comey informing him of his dismissal. I I feel like you can't really draw a lot of conclusions about the timeline based on the dates on the letters. We don't know that much yet about the discussions that led up to Rosenstein submitting that memo. And I think that's where the Hater is going to be. One argument to the question, why now? Uh, Trump knew all this stuff the moment he was sworn in is that it took a long time and the 
Trumpists will make this argument because of a, an obstreperous Congress, an obstreperous Senate to confirm all his choices at justice. And when, you know, two weeks ago, Rosenstein became deputy AG and they needed that to be in place before the trigger was pulled. How much is there to that argument? We didn't have our people in place and the blame for that belongs oh. to the Democrats. Yeah, I guess. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe they felt like they couldn't pull this trigger without the deputy attorney general being in his seat. But like, I don't think they would be restrained by that. Their record does not suggest that that would have been a reason for them to wait if this is what they really wanted. I think the timing question you know, might be as simple as they were sick of hearing about Sally Yates' testimony about Michael Flynn and the 18 days that the White House waited to get rid of him. They wanted to change the news cycle. I don't know if you saw there was a report last night saying that, you know, what was Trump doing in the wake of all this? He was watching TV and being mad that no one was defend no one from his team or from Congress was defending his decision. The notion that he was just trying to get rid of the news cycle, while it seemed to me initially to be kind of absurd, it's not that far off given how preoccupied this administration is with TV and the news cycle. In his letter, in his firing letter to Comey, Trump referenced uh, being told three times that he wasn't the source of an investigation. Do we have any reporting what those three times could have referred to? Not that I know of. I think we've not learned when Comey would have given him those assurances, whether those assurances were volunteered or whether Trump asked him if he was the subject of investigation. If he did ask him, that would be grossly inappropriate. If he if Comey volunteered it without being asked, that yes. would have been inappropriate yes. and out of character for Comey. Yes. Uh, my initial read on that line from the, from the Trump letter was Trump was like kind of apologizing for like, I know you did this nice thing for me and you've assured me that I'm not in trouble, but I'm sorry, I got to do this mean thing to you anyway, which seemed like quite consistent with like what I think of as Trump's worldview where, you know, you do someone a good turn, you can't turn your back on him. Yeah, it's or, all transactional. Like, yeah. Like but, acknowledging the debt. And yes, that is true, but still. Correct. But this is business. You're fired. Yeah. But yeah. then but then I was talking to some people today and they were like, no, I think that was in there because he wanted to like put it in writing that I'm not doing this because I'm under investigation because I'm not. And you told me so. OK, so who takes over the FBI investigation now? Well, I mean, Rod Rosenstein is is the one overseeing it as as Deputy Attorney General now that w with Sessions having recused himself following the revelation that he had misled Congress about his meeting with Russian officials. Turned out that he had, in fact, met with uh, the Russian ambassador, same guy that Michael Flynn talked to on the phone. When Sessions recused himself, that put Rosenstein at the head of the investigation. I read that he is interviewing acting uh, FBI directors like today. Presumably, that person will not be the permanent FBI director. There will be another FBI director who will have to go before Congress. And the question will be whether it's someone who can be counted on to carry out a, you know, a legitimate uh, investigation into, the, into this Russia question. Hard to imagine that the Trump administration will want to choose someone like that, considering from all appearances, the reason they got rid of the last guy is that he was doing just that. <laughs> so the independent prosecutor, how, if that were to be a thing that Congress wanted to go for, how would they do it? How would they do it above the objections of the president? Would they need a threshold of a vote? Oh, it's entirely the prerogative of Rod Rosenstein to appoint a special counsel. He was asked repeatedly during his confirmation hearing by certain Democratic senators whether he was willing to commit to appointing a special counsel to the Russia probe. And he repeatedly said, look, I I'm not even in the room yet. I've never looked at the briefing files. Can't ask me to commit to doing this investigation a certain way. This investigation, by the, by the way, I don't even know is actually happening. This was prior to Comey confirming that it was happening. 
he refused to commit to that. And I find that quite persuasive. I mean, based on what is he supposed to say that? What What are the cons, not for uh, just the interests of Trump, but what are the good arguments against a special prosecutor at this point? Because the pros would be, you know, we, we have a thorny issue, so let's take it as far away from politics and have someone truly independent oversee it. I get the logic of that. What's the con case? I have not heard a persuasive con case. <laughs> what are they saying? I mean, what I've heard is, hey, we can have a special prosecutor for everything and we don't need anything because there's nothing there. Although, how could you conclude there's nothing there until you have someone who looks into it? Yes. Yes. I, I find that unpersuasive. <laughs> if there is no special prosecutor, does then Ben Wittes become correct? Maybe he's correct now, but will he at least be justified? I sort of think that Rosenstein, you know, if I'm right that he, I wrote a piece last night saying that he was being essentially used uh, by the Trump administration to kind of like launder this mm -hmm. decision. The real reason that they wanted to get rid of Comey was the Russia investigation. But here's this guy Rosenstein who feels really strongly that Comey screwed up the Hillary investigation. Let him make that argument. We'll cite that argument as our rationale and bingo. We, we, we've gotten rid of Comey and we look perfectly principled, especially with Rosenstein and his startling rep reputation, you know, speaking on our behalf. So now he's in the position of, of having to decide, do, do I appoint a special prosecutor now? He has access to all the briefing files that he didn't have when he was being confirmed. I think if he wants to assert himself as a as deserving of the reputation he has earned over the course of his career, yeah, like, why wouldn't you? I mean, come on, like the only reason you wouldn't is because you're afraid that Trump's going to fire you if you do. Have we heard anything about the Russia investigation indicating it's not going well or it is ramping up? So the big uh, sort of bombshell that came out today was that Comey at Astrosenstein, uh, I believe, on Monday about whether he could have more resources for the Russia probe in the form of, I don't know, money or bodies or legal pads. He, he, Definitely legal pads. <laughs> uh, we don't know whether Rosenstein said yes or no, but we know that conversation took place, though DOJ initially denied that any such request was being made, had been made. Then they later revised and said, oh, actually, he did ask him for more resources. We thought you meant money, money. Uh, <laughs> They may have already switched back on that position. I have not followed in the last 10 minutes. And is there anything we should know that's being misreported, underreported, underemphasized, just that you could bring to us through your uh, your coverage and sources or insight? Yeah. I mean, as far as what, I don't know, it's fair to call this underreported. The thing I want to see reported on is what, what Sessions was doing for the last two weeks with regard to the Russian investigation. As, as we discussed, he did a pledge to recuse himself. Some argue, Al Franken argued this last night, that he violated that pledge by even being party to the decision to fire Comey, that by firing the guy who's in charge of the Russian investigation, that is, in effect, you getting involved in the Russian investigation. I think Sessions would say, well, no, but as we as we show in, in, in this Rosenstein letter, the Russian investigation had nothing to do with our decision to fire Comey. Therefore, yeah. this doesn't count yeah. as... As a part of recusal, this had nothing to do with Russia, so it doesn't get touched by my uh, recusal. Only someone who thinks that it is part of the Russian investigation would say anything about my being recused from that investigation. Yeah. So I, so I, I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't speculate, but I, I suspect that there were. I don't know. It's just hard for me to believe that Sessions didn't have discussions with Trump with Rosenstein about the Russian investigation. And I would like to know what those conversations are. Especially been. to bring it back to one of our earliest points, the uh, unprecedented interplay between justice and the rest of the executive in this administration. Leon Nafak covers justice for Slate. Thank you, Leon. Thanks for having me, Mike.
And now the spiel. In life, timing is everything. A blowhard con man who won't disclose his business dealings wants to run for president. He's dead in the water, right? Unless it's a year when the populace is antsy about job loss and racial status and there's a internet without any rules to help you along. See? Timing. Or you want to fire an investigator closing in on some things that you don't want to be closed in on? Maybe, perhaps, but let's wait. Let's wait for him to give bad testimony before Congress, and then you could send him to meet his lordy. Timing. But sometimes timing bites you in the butt. Like when, within 24 hours of that firing, that definitely wasn't over Russia. Who shows up but the Russian ambassador? For his first visit in four years. So what can you do? Well, you could provide him with a nice-sounding female interpreter so the pronouncements of this door apparatchik don't sound like you are being sentenced to five more years in the gulag. So the guy sounds nice. The problem is the interpreter, no matter how she sounds, actually has to interpret the words that the Russian foreign minister says. Well, I have just answered that President Trump publicly said that all of it it's false news. Just give me one fact that would prove that. And when everyone keeps saying openly that everyone knows everything, but giving no proof, well, it's not serious. In messaging, it's good to be on the same page, but when the words of the United States' great rival and a destabilizing influence in the world so neatly echo the words of the administration claiming distance from their great rival, which is a destabilizing influence in the world, when that happens, maybe you want to address that. The White House was reportedly surprised that Democrats, the media, the world was disturbed by the Comey firing. They figured everyone else would figure... It had nothing to do with Russia, as Trump wrote in the publicly released letter of termination. Although, if it had nothing to do with Russia, why do you even insert that topic in a letter firing a man for just cause? Yeah, just cause. So if Democrats don't behave like you think they're going to, it has nothing to do with the failure of imagination on your part. It must be because the Democrats are two-faced. Here is a tweet from Donald J. Trump earlier today. Crying Chuck Schumer recently stated... I do not have confidence in him, James Comey, any longer. Then acts so indignant. A townhall.com article by Katie Pavlich details, headline, 10 times Democrats slammed James Comey, called for his firing. Now, some of the Democrats of the 10 were people like Keith Olbermann, whose main job is posting nine-minute-long videos on Twitter. But of the actual elected officials who were quoted as having called for Comey's firing, none actually called for Comey's firing by President Trump. Many didn't call for Comey's firing at all. They said things like, he needs to go away, but not in a, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest sort of way. But they weren't calling for Comey's firing within the last couple months. They were expressing disgust or a loss of confidence. This is key before Trump was elected and before we and they learned that Comey was investigating Trump. When it became clear that Comey was looking into the Trump retinue and the Russians, the Democrats didn't call for Comey to go away. They wanted him to stay there. In fact, they wanted him to stay there despite their past misgivings. This doesn't speak to hypocrisy on the part of the Democrats. It speaks to the importance they assigned the Russia investigation. They wanted Jim Comey, Jim Comey, who many of the Democrats think, truly think, cost them the White House and a possibility of the Senate. They wanted this guy to stay on the job because the job was so important. That reflects well on the Democrats. They knew what the stakes were then. 
It's like Ralph Nader called the Corvair unsafe at any speed. But if Ralph Nader were hurtling down the highway at 50 miles an hour inside the Corvair, he wouldn't say at that point, now this car should disappear. Let's take Chuck Schumer. Here he is in a press conference today. The only way the American people can have faith in this investigation is it is it is for it to be led by a fearless, independent special prosecutor. If Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein does not appoint an independent special prosecutor, every American will rightly suspect that the decision to fire Director Comey was part of a cover-up. But let's remind you of Trump's tweet, Crying Chuck Schumer stated recently, I do not have confidence in him, James Comey, any longer. But the recently, or the recently, was not as recently as during the Trump presidency. It predated also the Trump victory. That quote comes from a Bloomberg article on November 1st. Schumer said all the things he's credited as saying against Comey before the election, before the election, once Trump became president, and once it became clear that Comey was investigating Team Trump's work with the Russians, Schumer wanted him there. And as you realize all this, remember, of course, that this had nothing to do with the Russians. Right, Kellyanne Conway? This had nothing to do with Russia as much as somebody must be getting $50 every time the word is said, I'm convinced, on TV. It says nothing to do with Russia. Well, there at least Kellyanne Conway earns her money. No, not for being a good spokesperson, just by her own rules. She said Russia twice on TV. Give her 100 bucks. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson, who's hoping to see the Hermitage and experience St. Petersburg. Oh, those are two separate vacations. One to Tennessee, one to Florida. She will have nothing to do with Russia. Chris Berube delights in the Dardanelles and is bowled over by the Baltic states, but has nothing to do with Russia. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He knows a great recipe for cold beet slaw. But that slaw is just that. Cold beet slaw. Don't use the other word. This has nothing to do with Russia. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's a huge fan of Peter the Great. I mean, the whole Frampton Comes Alive LP, the talk box. Feel like you do. Nothing to do with Russia. The gist. We are fascinated by Ivan the Terrible. Uh, uh, no, not, not the ruler. It was an internal Apple project to develop a multi-passenger vehicle. Total failure. Like the name says, Ivan the Terrible. It has nothing to do with Russia. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.